Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, is this the vaccine news we've been waiting for? Pfizer and BioNTech say they've developed a vaccine that appears to be 90% effective at preventing COVID-19. But while the results are promising, state officials say it will take months for a vaccine to be widely available here, even if it's approved before the end of the year. We look at the science behind the new vaccine and the challenge of convincing enough Californians to take it. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said this morning that there could be enough doses of a COVID-19 vaccine to begin inoculating the general public by next spring. The prediction is based in part on reports yesterday that Pfizer and BioNTech have developed a vaccine that appears to have a 90% efficacy rate with no serious safety concerns. But questions remain about how much protection the vaccine actually provides and how easy it would be to get it to people. Joining me is Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Chin Hong. Thanks for having me on, Mina. Also with us is Meg Terrell, senior health and science reporter for CNBC. Thanks for being here as well, Meg Terrell. Oh, my pleasure. So, Meg Terrell, I'll start with you. I mean, people are calling this report from Pfizer a watershed moment for vaccine development, that these are landmark vaccine results. I mean, can you put in context a 90% efficacy rate and why it's a big deal? 
Yeah. So this was just so much better than anybody expected the first vaccine for COVID-19 would work. The FDA had set a bar of needing to see 50% efficacy in these phase three trials in order to consider clearing the vaccines for market. And Wall Street, which we cover at CNBC, was looking for maybe 75%. And so to see 90%, you're getting up there with vaccines like measles, that's 97% effective, smallpox, 95%, chickenpox, 92%. Now, these are early results on the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, and the 90% might shake out a little differently. So we're going to have to see how it is in the real world. But 90% efficacy is really strong and really is the first sign that these vaccines actually worked to protect us against COVID-19. Before this, we'd just seen, oh yeah, they generate antibodies. But what did that mean? Does that actually mean they're protective? Now we know this one at least is protective. And how soon could it get approved for use given these results? Well, the expectation is it's going to go through emergency use authorization, um, which is sort of a more limited approval process to getting something on the market. Now, Pfizer and BioNTech need to get two months of safety follow-up data from the time that half the participants in the trial received their second shot, uh, and they anticipate getting there next week. And so after that, they will put together their data package, file it with the FDA. The FDA will hold a meeting of outside advisors to discuss all of the data, and, and we hope as the public will get to see all the data too and listen to all the discussions. Uh, and then the FDA will make a decision. Uh, but then, of course, there's all sorts of questions about supply and distribution, and it's going to be a complicated process. <laughs> yes. Well, let's first talk about how the science of it works. I mean, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, how does this particular vaccine work? And, and the reason I ask is because people are saying what it targets actually bodes well for other vaccines in development. Yeah, that's so true, uh, Mina. So essentially the core of all of these vaccines is presenting the body on a platter with something called a spike protein from COVID-19. So it's from SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, taking a little protein called a spike protein and saying, hey body, here's this protein that's not part of you. So your body and seeing this foreign thing makes these antibodies and the antibodies are primed so that when it sees the real deal COVID, it's going to zoom in and capture and neutralize them in its steps. So the way they go about presenting this spike protein is different depending on the different kinds of vaccines. In the case of Pfizer, it's through a process called uh, using mRNA. So it's the message to the body genetic message that tells the cells to make the spike protein. I see. And of course, we've also heard another company, Moderna, also uh, basically targeting mRNA vaccines. So does that, or targeting the spike protein through mRNA, does that mean that we could hear good news from Moderna soon? Yes. And not only Moderna, I think Moderna, uh, all eyes on Moderna now as being the next in line, the heir apparent, so to speak, for the next vaccine company that could produce very optimistic results because they use a very similar technology. But I think um, many people in the field in general are very optimistic because the spike protein, whether or not you use a virus to bring it in called a virus vector or you use subunits of spike protein, they all at the end of the day elicit very similar antibody response, at least in theory. And so how long of an antibody response? I mean, how long does the protection last? Well, that's the million dollar question. No one really knows. Um, you know, uh, Pfizer thinks that their vaccine wouldn't produce durable antibody response indefinitely and that 
uh, people may likely need to get a booster at some period of time. But the good news, at least for the general population, is that you have more than 40,000 people who are probably, you know, a few months ahead of the rest of the general population in terms of being studied so that when you look at their antibody levels over time, when they dip, that will give the general public some guidance as to when a booster is needed. I mean, and Meg Terrell, as Dr. Chin Hong was saying, that's just one of many questions in terms of how long the protection lasts, but many questions that need to be answered about this vaccine. Can you uh, share some of the others that you're hearing? Yeah. So yesterday we just got really the the top line headline, the vaccine works, 90% efficacy, no major safety issues. But there are so many more questions that people have about how the vaccine works. Does it protect against severe disease? Does it keep people from going to the hospital? Does it work as well in older people who often don't generate such a strong immune response with vaccines um, as it does in younger people? And so people will be looking to see all the details of the data to really know how this is going to help us and whom it's going to help the most. And uh, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, these questions are so important. I mean, can you just talk about why it's so important just in terms of broadly being able to get back to anything resembling normal life? It is hugely important for many reasons. One one issue that I think some of us are thinking about on the ground is, you know, everything looks great in the, you know, confines of a clinical trial. And that's you know, called efficacy. But when you use it in real world, does it really hold up to all of the bells and whistles and oversight of a clinical trial where you have trained study personnel? You know, when you use something in the real world, it often doesn't look as rosy as in a clinical trial. But above 90%, even if you go down a few percentage points, it would look, um, you know, it would still look probably pretty good, you know, in, in all likelihood. But to get to the point of not knowing these whether or not the vaccine works in subgroups is really important because that's really where the brunt of bad disease occurs in the world and in the United States. Older individuals, minority populations, um, you know, these are all questions that we need to know. The other question I think uh, is an important one is, does it actually prevent transmission? So yes. you might be protected yourself, but, you know, could you still transmit, um, you know, virus to other individuals? Which really does get at this question of whether or not all the safety precautions that we're taking that have also, you know, slowed down the economy to such an extent, would those be able to be lifted with any speed? So it's a really important question about transmission. Um, Meg Terrell, you mentioned the challenges to transporting and storing this particular vaccine. What do you mean by that? Can you talk about some of the challenges around that? Well, the main one um, is this vaccine has to be kept incredibly cold, minus 80 degrees Celsius. And so uh, there are just incredible challenges with keeping a vaccine that cold while you move it around the country. Um, and so Pfizer, the, the manufacturer, has ways of transporting it. And you know you can thaw it to some degree for a certain number of days. Uh, but that sort of logistical challenge is the greatest uh, with the first vaccine that's proven to work. The other 
other vaccines, uh, the Moderna one needs to be kept cold, but not quite that cold. Uh, and some of the other ones don't need to be kept quite so cold. And so it will be less complicated. But this is a really complicated question uh, with the first vaccine out of the gate. How do you keep it so frozen as you move it around? Um, and it's also two doses. And so you have to make sure that people come back three weeks later and get their second shot. Um, you have to track the, the people. You have to track the vaccine doses and make sure they get to the right place. So all of these details are going to start to be worked out over the coming weeks. Dr. Peter Chinong, we've been hearing that California is working to increase its cold storage capacity, but it doesn't sound like a lot of, you know, <laughs> these this technology is really readily available in terms of keeping things at, at such a cold temperature as Meg Terrell is describing. I agree. I mean, when you think about the massive scale at which we need to have available uh, to distribute the vaccine, you can't, you know, a Walgreens or a CVS or a school wouldn't have this high grade refrigeration or freezing cap capabilities normally. So I think all of those things need to be thought of when you're thinking about a massive scale, even for the first responders and the essential workers um, at the healthcare scene. You know, not all community hospitals would have this readily available. They'll have to, you know, it's not part of a normal pharmacy. Right. And then there's also, I'm hearing just issues of making sure that you have the necessary medical supplies for the Pfizer type vaccine. What are those supplies that we may need to stock up on? So they include things like syringes, even dry ice, uh, you know, when, when you're taking it out of the freezer, the ultra cold temperatures. And like Meg was saying, uh, we need information systems. Uh, suppose you got a vaccine in San Francisco, but then you went down to LA to spend time with your family and you got the second shot there. How can someone keep track of all of these things on a massive scale of millions? Wow, we're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He is an infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center and Meg Terrell, senior health and science reporter for CNBC. We're talking about coronavirus vaccines, the news out of Pfizer and BioNTech about their vaccine that has shown itself at least in clinical trials to be to have a 90% efficacy rate and we're inviting you our listeners to join us with your questions uh, about this news and what it means and also your reactions to it and any concerns that you might have what questions remain for you would you take this vaccine if it's approved this year why or why not you can give us a call at 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 you can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Concerns have been raised about the speed with which this vaccine has been developed. There are also concerns about possible side effects, even concerns about the connection between uh, vaccine development and the federal government. So let us know where you're at with all of this. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. leads the world, sadly, with 10 million COVID-19 cases and nearly a quarter million deaths since the pandemic broke out this year. And we're talking now about what Pfizer's landmark COVID vaccine results could mean for the pandemic. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UC San Francisco Medical Center, an infectious disease specialist, and Meg Terrell, a senior health and science reporter for CNBC. And you, our listeners, what are your questions about the Pfizer vaccine? Are you planning on taking a vaccine as soon as it's approved. Why or why not? You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And Elena writes, efficacy and safety can be different for different age groups of people with different risk factors. I imagine not all vaccine trials have included older patients, patients with risk factors, or children as much as they have included people that are not in these groups. Can your guest, ad- can your guest address the specific information for Pfizer and Moderna vaccines? I mean, Meg Terrell, what do we know about who participated in these clinical trials? So Pfizer initially started the age uh, of its clinical trial at 18, uh, and it goes up first to 55 and then goes up to, I believe, 85. Um, and then they started in uh, lowering the age. So they started uh, including people down to age 16 and then down to age 12. Uh, but they don't have as much data on the younger people because that was just uh, very recent. Um, now, they also... Um, made an effort to include diverse populations in the trial because, as we know, minority populations are much more affected by disease uh, than uh, others are. And so that was a a key focus of the trial. We don't have the breakdown um, exactly of um, in the trial who actually got the cases um, because that's how you judge efficacy in a vaccine trial. Um, You look to see how many people get the disease and you compare the placebo and the vaccine group. So we haven't seen the detailed data um, to actually see effects on different groups of people and to understand that. Uh, We also don't know the breakdowns of people with underlying conditions um, either. And so those will all be things we'll be looking out for. But that's such a great point. I mean, there there could be differences for different groups of people, um, and we'll want to know about those. And Lady tweets, how is Pfizer's mRNA vaccine different from Moderna's vaccine? Dr. Peter Chinhong? Well, I think we don't know all of that information at that level yet because it's not public and proprietary. We only have access to the blueprints, uh, in generic blueprints, but I think, you know, they're, they're similar enough. And, uh, you know, it may be that one encodes for different uh, spike protein than the other one, but very subtle differences that, you know, you know, we're not all privy yet to publicly, although when they go to the FDA level, I think uh, there'll be more information revealed. A and, great question. Yeah, a very good question. Let me go to Carrie in San Jose. Hi, Carrie. Hi, I just wanted to know if they um, have any idea of how long it will last, if you have to take it every year, or if it's something that's expected to last like some other vaccines for your lifetime. 
Uh, Carrie, thanks. And as you were saying, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, that is really the big question, right? Yes. And so there's some, you know, great question. There's some thoughts that the mRNA vaccines in particular may not uh, result in as much durable immunity, but meaning that you may need to get a booster, you know, after a year. So probably I would say in one to two years, and it may be that the other vaccines coming up the pipeline using different technology like viral vectors may respond, result in a longer durable antibody response, but we're not really sure yet. And let me thank Carrie for the call. Meg Terrell, what is the timeline for a vaccine reaching the U.S. market? I know you touched on this earlier, but can you just give our listeners a sense of that? So the expectation that the first clearance, the first possible emergency use authorization from the FDA could come in December, but it, we have so many caveats around that uh, that time frame because there will only be you know enough doses for a few million people, maybe forty million doses in the U.S. by the end of the year, and the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine is two doses, so that's enough for twenty million people, and so there will be more supply going into twenty twenty one, but that's why um, different bodies have sort of prioritized groups of people for who should get the vaccine first. You know, starting with healthcare workers, people who are at high risk of severe disease, like the elderly and those with other um, health conditions, frontline workers. And so it'll be a real staged rollout. So even if we all cheer when the first vaccine gets through the FDA, um, most of us won't be accessing it for months. And I mean, that's really interesting because I mentioned at the beginning, Dr. Chin Hong, that, uh, you know, Alex Azar was saying that it could be ready for the general population by spring. But we're hearing very different estimates from our governor. I mean, Governor Newsom said that the general public would likely be in the in the later half of next year, uh, as well as the fact that, you know, initially he doesn't even think that we would get enough uh, in terms of uh, the process that is required to make and distribute the vaccine for even all our healthcare workers who would be first in line to get it. I agree completely. First of all, you know, for all of the infrastructure that you need to build, uh, you know, that's one step. And then the second step is just a numbers game. You know, as Meg said, if if we have, you know, 40 million doses available to the entire country, and again, Pfizer has two distribution plants, one in Europe for the rest of the world and one in the U.S., mainly targeting the U.S. population. You know, if one million of those can come to California, it still wouldn't cover all of the first responders, healthcare workers that would need it. So you think, you know, I agree with Governor Newsom that the general public probably wouldn't see this uh, until, you know, summer, fall. And at that point, you'd have other vaccines coming into the fray as well. So it may be a situation and will likely be a situation where you wouldn't have a choice as to what kind of vaccine you get. It's really an issue of you get vaccine or not. And let me go to caller Angela in Berkeley. Hi, Angela. Join us. Hi. I just wanted to call in and say that I participated in the Pfizer trial. Oh, and wow. um, I'm a 67 and a half year old, pretty healthy senior. And I had a reaction after the second shot. It was a slight fever, but nothing, nothing like a, a bad flu. But it was um, a reaction to that. So I'm pretty sure that I didn't get the placebo. And um, the next day I was perfectly fine. So 
I just wanted to put that out there for anybody who's nervous or, um, you know, has hesitancy about um, about getting the vaccine when it does come available. And I, well, so many questions. I'm curious about what you know about the diversity of the participants in the trial. Did Were you given any information related to that? That was actually the first question I asked because I I was a little hesitant to become to be in the trial if the first phases didn't include the older age group and it did. Um, I forget what the exact was. It was something from I think forty to fifty, and then from uh, uh, sixty beyond. There was a gap in there, but. They they went for the middle age and then the senior population sort of to the extreme end. So um, over- I felt comfortable about including myself. Yes. And overall, you're basically saying that any side effects that you experienced were very mild. Exactly. Exactly. Not anywhere close to even the mildest flu that I've had. I I noticed that I was sort of feeling chilled. So I took my temperature and it was, it was slightly elevated. It was, I think, 101. And so I took a nap (laughs) and I didn't even take anything to reduce the fever. Um, The next day I felt perfectly normal again. And what information were you given or anything that you were, you've been asked to monitor as you go forward? I went in uh, for a uh, blood test. It's a blind test, so I really don't know anything. If you didn't get the placebo or not, you're saying, yeah. Exactly. Um, And so they took took a blood draw, and I go in again in the end of February. So I think it was something like five months um, after that first visit, which was maybe three to four weeks after the second vaccination. And then I'm scheduled to go in after in a year. So I think they're they're testing the the length of the efficacy. Right. Just to see if you still have antibodies and so on. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Angela, stay in touch with us. We'd we'd love to hear how uh, how things progress for you and if any insights you might be able to share. Thanks so much for calling. Sure, no problem. And and I I must emphasize that I you, you're, if I was not expected to do anything <laughs> do anything to test whether I you know would would get COVID. I mean, I'm certainly not going to any frat parties or anything. And I'm uh, submitting a little uh, questionnaire every week um, on whether I have symptoms of COVID, right. which I haven't. Well, well glad to hear it. To that. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for sharing your experience. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Sure. Uh, let me go next to caller Neil in Oakland. Hi, Neil. Hi. Um, I had a quick question about the trial itself. So I think there's about 40,000 people enrolled mm-hmm. and about 20,000 of them got the placebo and 20,000 of them got the uh, actual vaccine for COVID. So my question, so from what I understand is about 94 people out of this trial actually got COVID-19 do do the people uh, on the line have any idea of how many were from the uh, placebo group and how many were from the vaccine group? And if people who were vaccinated um, got COVID, how many were they and were any of them hospitalized or what symptoms they had? Is that data there or is this 
you know, something that we'll, we'll find about later. Neil, thanks. Uh, Meg Terrell, it was about 43 or 44,000 people, is that right, who participated in this? Yeah, so um, they enrolled in total almost 44,000 people. But the the way that they figure out if the vaccine works is they look to see how many cases of COVID-19 they see in the trial. Uh, they saw 94 at the time that they took this look. And then you look to see how many were on placebo and how many were on the vaccine. And so 90% efficacy implies you know a huge number more were on the placebo than who were on the vaccine group. They didn't give us an exact breakdown and I was an English major, so I'm not going to try to do the math and say how many maybe uh, Dr. Chin Hong can do it for us. Um, but <laughs> uh, that's what we know. We don't know. And those are such important questions about whether people were hospitalized or yes. any more details like that. We only got the top line information. So those are crucial questions we're waiting to find out the answers to. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, can you add to that um, in terms of Neil's question? What what do you know, if anything, about the people who did get infected and how ill they really got? Uh, I, I agree with Meg that we don't really know any more information that the efficacy rate and we assume given 90 percent efficacy that um, most of the cases do occur in the people who got the vaccine. I mean, sorry, in the people who got the placebo. I would say, however, that they're probably going to wait a little bit longer for full maturity of the database, not for approval, but for, you know, get, giving us more information. And that's, you know, they're going to go up, I think, to 164 cases. So I think at that point, we'll get more information. And certainly when it's used in real in the real world setting for effectiveness, uh, we'll get even more uh, information then. Well, Neil, thanks for raising important questions. Let me go next to Gwen in San Francisco. Hi, Gwen. Hi, um, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But I'm going to wait until they get the bugs out of this thing. Uh, I'm not like the lady in Berkeley. I don't want even a mild case of flu because I don't like being sick. Plus, I have all kinds of pre-existing uh, conditions like cancer, asthma, you name it, I got it. I will be continue to be safe by wearing my mask, my gloves, and my goggles. And thank goodness I don't have to work. So I don't need that. I already have multiple sources of income. So I can just wait it out until they perfect the virus. Gwen, thanks for that. I mean, Meg Terrell, she raises such important points. I mean, one I think that you have also reported on is just the incredible speed with which this vaccine was developed. I mean, we had been hearing how anything developed this year or next even, right, would be like record speed for a vaccine. And for some people, it, it feels like, yeah, they'd rather wait a little while until sort of as Gwen was saying, to some degree, getting sort of the kinks out of it. Can you talk a little bit about about that, the speed, and put that in context, but also this concern that people have that they don't want to take something that was developed so quickly? Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, something that I hear from a lot of people. And so in terms of the speed, I mean, this really is an unprecedented scientific effort. Before this, the fastest vaccine that was ever developed was four years, and that was for mumps in 1967. And so we're talking about a virus that we only started hearing about back in January. I mean, the World Health Organization was only notified of this mysterious viral pneumonia circulating in Wuhan, China at the end of December. And now we're here in November and we have 
have a vaccine that looks like it works. So that's amazing. Um, calling this project Operation Warp Speed, you know, people like Dr. Anthony Fauci have said, whoops, maybe that was an unfortunate title because it implies that speed is the first priority when the scientists involved in this emphasize that safety and efficacy are the first priority and they are speeding things up only in the ways that do not affect those two priorities. Um, and so I do hear from a lot of people um, who are pro-vaccine in terms of all the childhood vaccines we get that protect us from all kinds of things like measles and, and mumps and that was developed in 1967, um, but who feel uncomfortable taking the first vaccines when they get to market just from this idea that there are still kinks to work out. And that is going to be a challenge of the public health system um, to to show people that these vaccines are really safe and they will benefit you more to take them um, than any kind of, of risks that might come with them. Um, but that is certainly something we hear a lot. Dr. Peter Chinhong, I mean, here in California, people who just would outright refuse to take a vaccine and don't want to take vaccines that have already been approved for decades, they've gotten a lot of national media attention, also because it seems that the groups have sort of also merged with maybe anti-masking groups or groups associated with being anti-lockdown as well. And so it seems like it's a growing voice. How big a problem do you think that is for California? Well, I think it's a growing problem ever since, you know, for the last few decades, if you look at the trends and, you know, I think there's no easy solution. You know, in my clinical practice, I think of it as a, there's a core of people who are sort of fixed, but it st still doesn't prevent me from in trying to engage with them in the office. And, you know, um, over time, I've seen some of the folks actually modify their views on that. And then there's the group of people who I think are the penumbra of the shadow. You know, these are people who are on the fence. They can go either way and and uh, could be influenced by both people in the health professions and public health as well as the core. And it's really important for us to, you know, meet people where they are, not be dogmatic uh, and sort of engage with folks over time and use empathy. So, you know, I think these are all issues that we face in the day to day. And but frankly speaking, it is going to be, you know, you know, coming back to efficacy versus effectiveness in the real world, you know, we're not going to get to herd immunity unless a, a certain segment of the population really embraces this over time. Yes. About what proportion is that? How many people need to take it for it to be effective at keeping basically all of us safe? So, you know, you see different estimates uh, from place to place, but 70 to 80 percent is really what we need to really mm. have the healthy folks prevent the sicker folks or the folks who haven't been immunized from from disease. That's actually a pretty high bar, at least if you go by surveys as recent as last month, where you really had, you know, 60% or so of adults saying that uh, they might be able, they might be willing to take it. And that number has shifted quite a bit. So an interesting thing to keep in mind. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center, is talking with us. Also, Meg Terrell, a senior health and science reporter from CNBC. We're talking about the Pfizer vaccine, coronavirus vaccines generally, and what are being worked on out there, and, and hearing from you whether you would take one, why or why not, and what your questions are about it. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the science behind the Pfizer vaccine and what it would take to get it to people. Uh, We're asking you, our listeners, to weigh in with your questions and thoughts. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. What questions do you have about the vaccine? Uh, You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And this listener writes, I would absolutely get the vaccine. I lost my aunt and uncle to COVID in New Jersey this March. Sorry to hear that. I don't want to watch my 79-year-old father die. My biggest concern is actually how quickly we can get the vaccine to vulnerable people, especially people who are marginalized or well-connected to medical care. Meg Terrell, can you talk a little bit about sort of the national guidelines that states are adapting um, in terms of how to distribute the vaccine? Yeah, so every state um, is compiling its own plan, essentially. Um, And we'll have to see, you know, how this goes as we transition into a new administration and and how the federal oversight works with the state oversight. But right now, the the plan of the Trump administration is to have states uh, figure out vaccine distribution themselves within their states. Now, we've heard from certain different states that um, they don't have enough funding to to do this the way that they feel they need to do it. And I was actually just talking with some local um, health department group that represents them to who were saying that at the local level, they really need to be engaged. Um, and so we're going to start to see this get worked out, at, you know, through pharmacies, through hospital systems, how each state decides to do this. And, you know, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have also contracted with some of the large pharmacies to make vaccines available for people in nursing homes. Um, so all of these different things will start to, you know, roll this out and be involved in the distribution. But it could be sort of different state by state. And of course, as we go into a new administration, um, we'll have to see how that starts to uh, impact things as well. And Dr. Peter Chin Hong, what can you tell us about the draft distribution plan that California has put out in terms of which groups are prioritized and in what order? Yes. Yeah, so I think that uh, the first group is going to be, you know, a group that folks uh, could easily think about, which is the frontline healthcare providers. And then the next group will be, uh, you know, those with, uh, comorbid conditions, uh, heart disease, uh, lung disease, et cetera, and the other essential work care workers. I think really what's um, a discussion point is exactly how vulnerable populations fit into this uh, framework. And, you know, they are going to be prioritized, but I think the exact details are still, you know, need to be clarified. Um, and I think all of us really on the, on the ground level really think that uh, they should be right up front and center in terms of amongst the first priority populations, whether or not they would take the vaccine is another, you know, uh, issue that we need to discuss because, you know, there's been so many years of mistrust. And, you know, when you look at the the opinion polls in African-Americans, for example, are very hesitant about uh, getting the vaccine at this point. 
Yes, as you mentioned, I mean, distrust has been something that's been highlighted quite a bit because of previous experience, but also structurally speaking, it is also, it sounds like, very tied to just disparities in access to healthcare and engagement with the healthcare system as well, um, as as well as the, the past history of the way that medicines and things were applied and, and how it had a racist past as well. Can you just talk about how the disparities are also playing a role in affecting people's ability and willingness to get a vaccine. Totally. So you outlined two of the main uh, issues, I think, if you, you wanted to look at history and, you know, since Tuskegee, when, you know, there was a famous natural history study of syphilis, uh, where individuals in the South were African-American men were left uh to have syphilis untreated, even though there was effective treatment available, so that uh, investigators can understand how syphilis progressed. And, and um, I think those that was one example. The other example, of course, that's frequently cited is the use of, of, of cells from an African-American woman for, with cervical cancer for HPV, basic science research. Um, and, you know, that spawned out a book and a, and a movie. And I think that's in the consciousness still to this day in many populations, not just African-American populations, but although there are so many safeguards. So that's one issue. And then the other issue, of course, is, which is much, very much looming in our, in our vision is the structural barriers and, and structural racism that prevent individuals from even accessing care. So we've seen that very much so in testing. You know, when you look at where testing centers are and the study after study showing that they are very, very difficult for uh, minority populations to access. And it's really um, clustered around uh, areas with high SES when you look at various metropolitan areas. Well, Stephen writes, your guest mentioned Operation Warp Speed. We should clarify that Pfizer was not part of the government program and took no money from the government for development of their vaccines. Meg Jarrell, can you can you clarify this point? I think Pfizer, to some extent, has distanced itself from the Trump administration. And in part, as we're talking about trust, one of the reasons is because the vaccine development had become so politicized, not necessarily that that was what was driving Pfizer itself, but that it may be an advantage. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Pfizer found itself really coupled up with the election in terms of the timing for having its vaccine data. Uh, its CEO, in a number of interviews over the last few months, was saying they expected to have the data on whether the vaccine worked by the end of October. And so, uh, you know, the president, when talking about this on the campaign trail, kept tying the vaccine to election day, um, and you know that that caused a lot of politicization, obviously. Uh, but even before all of that. Pfizer decided from the beginning that it didn't want to take government funding to support the research and development process of the vaccine. Uh, it thought it could do it faster by itself. Now, they did benefit from Operation Warp Speed. You know, this was a huge effort uh, that all of the other vaccine companies, essentially, uh, that are in the lead in the U.S. are involved in. Um, and so certainly Pfizer benefited from that coordination. And also the U.S. government, through Operation Warp Speed, made a $2 billion purchasing agreement with Pfizer 
they only get the money. It's for 100 million doses. You know, if the vaccine succeeded and gets on the market, it has succeeded. It looks like you know, they will get that money. But it it was not money that they got along the way through Operation Warp Speed. Um, so they are sort of under the umbrella of Operation Warp Speed, but they didn't take government money and they weren't, you know, folded in the same way other companies are. And let me go to Daniel in West Sacramento. Hi, Daniel. Yes, thank you. I'm interested in finding out if we will eventually ever, before it's actually uh, uh, administered to the public, if we will ever find out what's actually in the vaccine. Are there adjuvants? Uh, How was the uh, messenger RNA produced? Are there factors remaining from the manufacture process? Are there contaminants? Uh, you know, uh, will this information be made public yes. eventually? I understand it's proprietary at this point, but will we get to know what's in the, that vaccine, vaccine, actually? Daniel, thanks. Peter Chinghong, do you have any sense of what we would get to know and when related to what's in the vaccine, as Daniel asks? I think certainly at the point of FDA clearance and and even at the emergency use authorization step, I mean, all that information should be available and publicly available. We know that information for other vaccines. So I don't expect that these vaccines would, uh, you know, not follow suit. Well, this listener writes, I'll be right in line behind, behind Fauci. Good enough for him. Good enough for me. Owen tweets, is there a plan to get teachers vaccine so kids can get back to school in person? There is a conversation about teachers. They have definitely come up, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. Do you know where they fall on California's plan? And I should actually mention that people can get more details about the draft plan on the California Department of Public Health's website, but they would fall under essential workers? Uh, they would follow uh, under essential workers, but not, you know, in the first uh, tier level. I think there, I have to go review those guidelines again myself for teachers, but I believe that they'll be in the second or third tier, but definitely a a prioritized population as well. Yes. Let me go to Mo in Napa. Hi, Mo. Hello. Um, Because there are reservoirs of coronavirus that are non-human, much like influenza, are we going to be expecting this to be a yearly occurrence, a new type of vaccine delivered every year? Hmm. Thanks, Mo. It's actually sort of related to another question. Bruce asks, how broad are the protections? Does it work for different coronavirus strains or other similar viruses? Dr. Peter Chinhong, could this be something that we're sort of developing on an annual basis? Like the No, one? I think this is it. You know, I think in terms, so far as we know, we don't, we haven't seen many major mutations of COVID or SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, so far, very minor mutations. And COVID is Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is very different from influenza. The reason why influenza is so challenging is because it changes its coat by different subunits of protein, H and Ns, year to year. We go to uh, Australia and New Zealand to see what their winter was like before to guess what we have to use for this year's flu vaccine. But COVID, uh, the the virus that causes COVID, SARS-CoV-2, is kind of like a stable virus. So we don't expect that the vaccine will have to change from year to year. And it's mainly whether or not your immunity wanes and you have to get a booster rather like kind of like tetanus rather than giving a a whole new combination of vaccines. So great question. Rick writes, I've heard that later available vaccines may be more effective than the first ones. And if you take the first, you may not be able to use the second better one. 
If this vaccine is as good as they say, does that eliminate this issue, Dr. Chin Hong? Yes, I agree. You know, one one of the questions that came up before Pfizer brought out their results was, you know, suppose uh, you get the old Navy vaccine, but then the Gucci comes along. Uh, how do you rationalize that? But I think in the beginning, emergency pandemic phase, uh, you probably wouldn't have a choice. It's just, again, the numbers game. But at some point, uh, you know, there will be an issue where all the vaccines are available. Everyone's or well, a certain proportion of the population is vaccinated and you you would have a choice. For example, we we make that choice in other vaccines as well. You know, there are some HPV vaccines that cover fewer types than others uh, in other countries have had to make that choice. So it would be an interesting uh, debate that will come up at some point. But luckily, you know, the first one out the gate, amazing efficacy rate, if it holds up, which is over 90%. Let me go to Joe in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Joe. Hi. Um, I guess I'm a little confused for the people who are not willing to take it because either they're afraid or they feel as if it's not been um, developed or tested enough or proven enough. Uh, isn't it better to get a vaccine than to get the actual full-blown virus? Um, I suppose it'll come down to if there's a large death rate with, with the vaccine. But that's just where I'm a little confused is, you know, especially in America, you know, with, you know, the, the amount of, of cases we're having, isn't it better to take the risk on the vaccine than to get the full virus? Joe, thanks. thanks. I, I'll go back to you, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, just in terms of what people should be weighing as they gauge whether or not to get the vaccine. Well, I think it's, you know, for me, it's such it's it's a very easy decision. You know, I would stick my hand out tomorrow if it were available. Um, but I know for many people, it is a difficult conversation uh, because of maybe past experiences or fears or, or confusion from stories uh, from individuals or even the anti-vaxxer movement. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, weighing the pros and cons for me, just objectively, I would suddenly look at the evidence. And I think, like you pointed out, Mina, safety is going to be a big um, uh, outcome that people are going to look at. And, you know, fortunately, they will, it will take some time for everyone to get the vaccine. So at least we will be collecting data along the way and people will, will uh, you know, show us whether or not there are any adverse safety effects that come up over time. And, you know, again, my bottom line with all of the, these conversations is really to meet people where they are and, and to be science focused as much as possible, but also to hear what, what people's fears are and, and respond to those in, in using evidence and reassurance as much as I could. And again, Dr. Peter Chin Hong is infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. Meg Terrell is with a senior health and science reporter for CNBC. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And Meg Terrell, if you do want to get it, I mean, what can you break down the cost? I know that we're hearing that these vaccines should be free, but can you talk about how uh, they're negotiating and figuring out how how to deal with the cost of this and insurance and so on? So the federal government says that the coronavirus vaccines should be free to every American. And so there's kind of two parts of the cost equation to think about. Um, it's, there's the vaccine itself, and then there's the administration fee for doctors, pharmacists, whoever's giving you the vaccine. And the government is saying both of those will be 
no cost to Americans, no matter whether you have insurance or what kind of insurance you have or if you're uninsured. Um, the government has been purchasing these vaccines from the companies. Um, and so they they actually have kind of different prices based on the the sort of deals struck by Operation Warp Speed with the companies. So the, the Pfizer price uh, was $1.95 billion for 100 million doses. So it's essentially $19.50 a dose. You get two doses to be fully vaccinated. Uh, but that has been covered by the government. And they tell us there should be no cost to Americans. Well, this listener tweets, I wouldn't touch a vaccine with a barge pole. Nobody knows the side effects or how long immunity will last and what the heck else mRNA will do. What if the protein copying mechanism goes the Frankenstein way. Tracy writes, one of the greatest problems in our country exacerbated by Trump is that we can choose to doubt science and technology without evidence. Why should we be at all surprised by the speed of development of a vaccine? And Chris writes, I've heard that this result from Pfizer is encouraging for other vaccine candidates in development. What do your guests think about this? How could it impact deployment of vaccines if we have multiple successes, especially if one is more effective than another? I mean, Meg Terrell, we've talked about Moderna, but really, you know, the the t kind of focus on, you know, spike proteins and so on is is really what all the U.S. vaccines are focused on, right? And what could that mean in terms of, as Chris is asking, having multiple successful vaccines? Yeah. So before we got this result on the Pfizer vaccine, that was actually kind of a worry among vaccine experts that I talked with. What if we put all of our eggs in this basket and the basket's the wrong basket? Um, this result suggests, as Dr. Anthony Fauci told um, Helen Branswell at Stat News in a great piece that she wrote yesterday about what this means for other vaccines, um, that he is optimistic about this uh, for all the vaccines that are coming behind um, behind this one, uh, because they all go after the spike protein. Now, the Moderna one is another messenger RNA vaccine, so that's very similar. Um, but then there are vaccines from Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, which actually use another harmless virus to ferry genetic material of the spike protein to our cells. And then our body does the same thing. Uh, we make that spike protein, our antibodies see it. They say invader, make antibodies. Sorry, not our antibodies, but our, our immune system sees it and makes antibodies. Um, and so then we recognize it in the future. And then there are other vaccines that are more familiar technology, which just deliver the spike protein itself. And then we see it and make those antibodies. Um, and so the fact that all of these are targeting the spike protein protein bodes well when we see a vaccine that works against the spike protein. Uh, but, you know, vaccine experts were telling me, why weren't we using an inactivated virus approach, for example, something that they're doing in other countries, and it's a tried and true vaccine technique. They were worried we'd missed an important way of going after this. But the results yesterday tell us we're on the right track. And, uh, you know, we just have seconds left. But but Dr. Chin Hong, one of the things that Governor Newsom said is that he's worried that as people get excited about the vaccines, as they get rolled out, that people will be tempted to flout coronavirus restrictions. Can you just help us sort of manage our expectations for if and when we could ever do that? Yes, um, that's such a great uh, point, Mina. I think that it probably will be some time before we can resume resume the life that we aspire to again, unfortunately, for multiple reasons. First of all, vaccines, are only, it's not a magic bullet. It's only one of many tools that we'll have. And right now we're in the middle of a raging pandemic. We won't have vaccine supply available to many people in the U.S. for a long time. And many people won't get it. So yes, for so all these reasons, yes. It'll be a while. Dr. Peter Chinhong, Meg Terrell, thanks to Blanca Torres for producing the segment and to our listeners for their questions and comments.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.